Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word together. Revelation chapter 13 this morning. Revelation chapter 13, and this morning we're going to focus on verses 11 through 18, where we see revealed to us another one of the beasts that uh, chapter 13 holds out for us. Last week we learned about the beast that rises out of the sea and what it represents, and this week we learn about the beast that rises out of the earth and what it represents. And this is a challenging passage. In fact, many have said that Revelation 13 is the most difficult chapter in all of the book, which is the most difficult book in the entire Bible. So we have our work cut out for us this morning. Revelation chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 11. If you would just follow along in your copy of God's Word, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll study it. John is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He sees this vision, and he tells us, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, or in some translations it might say, for it is the number of mankind, and his number is 666. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word, and we acknowledge that it is a challenge for us at times to understand what you have revealed to us. Throughout our study in the Revelation, we've seen wonderful things, wonderful visions, wonderful symbols, We've seen pictures of what you have promised to your people. We've seen what is against, what stands against your people. And here again, as we are in the midst of this series of seven signs, you're showing us the spiritual reality behind the persecution and tribulation and trial that we face on earth. So help us as we study, help us to see, help us to focus Help us not to be distracted by what's going on in our life after worship or even maybe what might be going on around us, but help us to focus on you and learn from you. I do pray that you would accomplish your purpose of allowing us to worship. This is worship. Worship doesn't end when the songs end. Worship continues as we hear your word and we respond to it faithfully. So would you allow us to worship you now in spirit and in truth, focusing upon you, to learn and to grow and to respond. 
I pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. During World War II, the use of propaganda became a major influence in Nazi Germany and in the surrounding nations. And and we even know this. If you're a student of World War II, you know that that propaganda didn't stop right there in that region of the world. It spread all over the globe. Adolf Hitler was the leader of Germany's Third Reich, but Joseph Goebbels, I know that's a weird pronunciation the way that the name is spelled, but that's how you pronounce his name. Joseph Goebbels was his minister of propaganda. Goebbels led a massive campaign to spread misinformation and half-truths and rumors and lies all throughout the world, but especially he wanted to twist the understanding of the German people with regard to the Jews and with regard to their mission in the world. He wanted to sway public opinion, and he was not above using lies in order to do it. And and you may know this, he used every form of media available to him at the time. They were dropping leaflets from planes. All the radio broadcasts were, were pumping these lies out. Newspapers, even movies. He hired the, the greatest directors of his day and the, the most prolific actors and actresses of his day in order to spread more and more these lies that he was using to deliberately manipulate the minds of the world and especially the German people. And while history remembers that Hitler was the monster who tried to take over the world and exterminate the Jews, history also remembers Joseph Goebbels as the false prophet of the Third Reich, who systematically worked to manipulate the German people and the world with lies. Now the reason I bring that up this morning in introduction to this sermon is that we have a similar relationship between the first and the second beast. If the first beast is the head of the Antichrist, then this second beast is his propaganda minister. Last week we met the the beast of Revelation that comes out of the sea, this hideous creature put together with all of these different beasts, and this is a creature set on dominating the world and destroying Christians in the process. We learned that the beast might take on many forms, but in total it represents the powers of this world, the nations and kingdoms who set themselves up in the position of God. In reality, this beast is referred to as the Antichrist, or at least it fits the mold of the language used of the Antichrist in other books of Scripture. And this morning, we meet the second beast who is, like I mentioned, his propaganda minister. The beast from the earth is a spokesman. He speaks in measured tones. He's not this amalgamation of different beasts. He he takes on a different form, and his intention is to twist the truth, to spread misinformation, and to lie in order to entice the men and women of the world to worship the beast. The beast from the earth is less hideous than the one from the sea, but he is more sinister. He appears as a lamb, but when he speaks, we realize that he is a dragon. He is a priest for the dragon. But in reality, he's the false prophet, or at least that's what he symbolizes. That's what he represents. He represents a false prophet or false prophets who promote idolatry in the world. And God has given this vision to us so that we can be on guard against his tactics. 
So like I said earlier, Revelation 13 and these two beasts represent perhaps the most difficult passage in this entire book. The symbolism is vivid, it's imaginative, and much of it reflects not only Old Testament scriptures that set a foundation, but also what was taking place in the Roman first century. And there are so many different views on how we're supposed to interpret this and understand this. And as we've been doing this for 30-something weeks now, you understand where my position is. And if you hold a different position, that's fine, but you need to be able to justify that by the clear reading of Scripture. We're going to need to think very clearly and very deeply about this. And so my assumption is that you came to church, so we're going to do some work today. So I need you to focus and think and listen and learn with me. And the first thing we see as this passage opens up is we see the rise of the false prophet. Go back to verse 11, and here's what we're going to do. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful you've come. Here's what I do. I'll read the passage, and then we'll just walk through it piece by piece and try to make sense out of what we're seeing and then apply it to our lives today. He says in verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. The first beast comes from the sea. The second beast comes from the earth. The implication is that this beast aims to take over the entire world. But this particular beast has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, the fact that this beast has the outward appearance of a lamb reminds us of something I brought up last week, that in this symbolism and in these beasts, we see uh, this theme of parody, or we see this theme of counterfeiting. What Satan wants to do through the dragon and through these beasts is to set up in the world something of a parody, a counterfeit to the the trinity, a counterfeit to the purpose of Christ and the work of Christ and the people of Christ. And that continues in this particular vision, much like we saw with the beast that came out of the sea. So the first beast was presented as a mock satanic version of Christ, all the way down to the fact that the first beast had a mortal wound and yet it was still alive, like Christ who died and rose again. The first beast slanders God and slanders the people of God, and the first beast sets itself up in the place of God. The second beast steps up to help out with that plan. If the first beast is a parody of Christ, the Antichrist, then this beast would be a counterfeit to the apostles of Christ. False prophets, false apostles. That's what this second beast is a symbol of. False prophets and false religion. In fact, as we continue to study through the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 13, in Revelation 19 verse 20, and in Revelation 20 and verse 10, when, when John tells us about the dragon and the beast, he references this being as the false prophet. So we see this symbolism being borne out in the rest of the book. And because this is a false prophet, or at least this beast symbolizes the false prophets of the world, we need to remember what Jesus taught us about false prophets. Way back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this to to us, to his people, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. In other words, they are coming. They are already among you. Beware of them. And he tells us to beware of them because they don't necessarily stand out as false prophets. They're good at hiding themselves. He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And then he tells us, you will recognize them by their fruits. You remember that passage, right? 
Now, Jesus didn't tell us about false prophets because they weren't real. He told us about false prophets because they are real. And he wants us to be able to recognize them, not by their outward appearance, but by the fruit of their lives and the fruit of what they say. John, in one of the other works that John wrote, so John is the revelator. John is the one writing down this revelation for us. John also wrote the gospel and the letters that bear his name. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13, John tells us about these false prophets. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world... And this was earlier in the first century. They've already gone out into the world. And by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, we've talked about that. I don't want to go into too much detail, but if your expectation is that the Antichrist is only this future creature, this future being, this future individual, then you have to come back to the Scriptures and understand that in the middle of the first century, the Apostle John is saying the Antichrist is already at work in the world today. And you see his work in the world because he has convinced other people, people in the world, to deny Christ. By definition, that is anti-Christ, right? So from the very beginning in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the apostles that follow, we are taught that false teachers are those who deny Christ. They are those who promote worldliness through their teaching and through their ideas. And they are influenced, they are motivated, they are propped up by the spirit of Antichrist. And false prophets are in the world today, and they have been since the time of the early church. They may not look demonic, They may not look sinister, but the scriptures tell us that their hearts are filled with darkness. Their hearts are filled with a a, a desire to deny the work of God. False prophets may look like sheep, but when they open their mouths, they reveal they are ravenous wolves. They reveal that they have teeth. Now notice that the second beast has horns like a lamb, but its voice is that of A dragon. And remember what we learned about the dragon and the beast from last week that the means of their attack, the tactics by which they try to deceive the world, is through their words. And John is saying this beast is not much different. It's using lies, it's using misinformation, it's twisting the truth, much like the serpent did in the garden in Genesis 3. False prophets hide in plain sight like wolves in sheep's clothing, but Jesus wants us to recognize them by their fruits. And in this case, we recognize them by their words, by their voice. He sounds like a dragon. Doesn't sound like our Lord. He twists the truth, he lies, he denies the gospel, and he spreads the propaganda of worldliness throughout the world. And here's a question that you need to have in the front of your mind. Do you know the Word of God well enough to be able to identify a counterfeit? False prophets in our own day are quite crafty. They disguise their dragonish accents. And many of them fill pulpits. Oftentimes they don't really want to focus on specific Christian 
doctrine. They don't want to get down to the details of theology. They rather want to focus on the general themes that the scriptures address, or maybe not even addressing them through scripture, just the general themes that that human beings are concerned with. Like they want to talk about love. And who can argue with a sermon on love, right? And so they focus on love, and before long, we realize that they're not talking about love as it's defined in Scripture. They're talking about some other form of love, a form of love that is shaped by culture, that's shaped by our own instincts internally. They say things like, well, if God is love, then we can't talk about hell or the moral demands of the Christian life. If God is love, then we shouldn't talk about sin, We should just talk about loving everybody. We should talk about good things because God is love and love is good. And and they talk about, they take these general truths and they arrive at unbiblical conclusions. And by doing so, lead people astray. And love is just one example. There's so many others. And in that particular case, and we talked about this Wednesday night in our study in systematic theology, in that particular case, what happens is you make an idol out of love. Your definition of love becomes the standard by which God is measured, rather than God being the standard by which your love is measured. And we've simply made an idol out of our emotional understanding of love. And that's exactly what the beast wants to do. He wants people to worship an idol. He wants people to set up an idol, a worldly idol. And rather than worship the one true God and his Christ whom he sent, he wants us to worship something else, something that's made in our own image. In verse 12, we learn about this second beast, that he exercises all of the authority of the first beast, which is a, a, it's language to help us understand that the dragon, the ancient serpent, is behind this beast as well. He exercises a demonic authority, and he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, Daniel, all the way back in the Old Testament, Daniel warned us about the first beast beast. Daniel doesn't say anything about this second beast. And he revealed to us, it was Daniel who revealed to us, that the beast is a symbol of the kingdoms of this world who stand against God and and against God's people. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 7. This second beast is not mentioned by Daniel, but this second beast comes out of the earth. It has a religious role. It wants to promote false religion. and And in many cases, it wants to make people worship the state or worship man in its highest form. Now what exactly does this mean for the early church? Because don't forget, John is writing this at the end of the first century, somewhere around 90 AD, and he's writing this specifically to a group of seven churches initially. Right, those seven churches that are referenced in the first three chapters of the book. And John is writing this to them, and he's writing it in such a way that they can understand what's going on and be prepared to live their lives in the culture that they find themselves in. So what was happening, perhaps, in that cultural day to, that, that would make sense out of this? In John's day, Christians were under great pressure to pay homage to Caesar. There was a a cult, an emperor cult that had been set up in Rome. The Caesars had begun to claim that they were deity and they were deified amongst their people. And in many cities, there were temples set up to various pagan gods and the emperor was just one of them. And it was, the Christians were under great pressure to not only participate in that cultural form, but they were even required, if, if it happened this way, that, 
the, the messengers of the emperor would come by. They were required to take a pinch of incense and offer it on an altar and declare, Caesar is Lord. And Christians were under great pressure to pay homage to Caesar. And in order to be able to feed their families and do business, they were required to engage in or at least tempted to engage in immoral practices so that they could have a chance to better themselves. Let me give you a quote. Roughly every month in these cities, there were trade guilds, and these trade guilds would sponsor common meals. So in order for you to be a tradesman, in order for you to participate in the the local economy, you were part of a trade guild, and the trade guild would sponsor these meals for their members every month And during these feasts, they not only involved the worship of the emperor, but also the worship of local patron deities. And it would almost always result in some form of mass sexual immorality. I'm not trying to be controversial, I'm just telling you what the history tells us. And for a Christian not to accommodate themselves to these pagan practices placed them at significant economic risk particularly if they owned a business and wanted to get ahead in that particular society. By the end of the first century, all seven of the cities that had letters from Jesus addressed to them at the beginning of the Revelation, all seven of those cities had temples dedicated to the emperor in them, every one of them. And so John is writing this to those Christians, and he's helping them understand what they're up against. And he knows what they're up against because he's in exile because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And just so that we can get a picture here, what's happening, this means that Christians in that day were faced with the terrible choice of committing idolatry and sexual immorality in order to feed their families or being faithful to Christ. John is writing to them, and he's showing them that the, beneath the veneer of what's happening in your culture is this demonic reality that you need to be aware of. And he's calling on them who were riding the fence on this issue to understand what was at stake and to reject this idolatry because of what it stands for. And for those who are already holding fast to Christ and not engaging, he's telling them to continue to, to hold fast to Christ. That's what this symbol would would apply in that particular culture. The true prophets of God serve under the authority of Christ. They lead others to worship Christ who lived and died and rose again. They preach the truth, not perfectly, but faithfully because our devotion is to Christ and to His Word. Our trust is in Christ and His Word. That's what true prophets of God do, but false prophets serve under the authority of the beast or the dragon, and they lead others to worship man rather than God. They speak like the dragon and not like Christ, and they twist what is true, and they deny God's Word, and they deceive others with their lies. That's what we're dealing with. And John is using this symbolic language to help the church see that. In the world. But that's not all he says. He also tells us that we will see them, we will know them by their fruits. Look at verse 13. Talking about this second beast, it says, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, even telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. John shows that this beast is 
a counterfeit to Christ's apostles in a, in a number of ways. Think about this for a moment. Think about the role of the apostles of Jesus in the book of Acts. Their Lord, their Savior, their teacher, their rabbi had died, rose again. They spent time with him. He ascended to the right hand of God. And then they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they went throughout the world at that particular time, not only preaching the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God, but also performing signs, signs to draw attention to, to the, the message they were preaching, signs that validated the message they were preaching. And they led men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language at that particular time to to trust in Christ by faith and to worship Christ. And look at the counterfeit of what this beast does. He's filled with the authority of the serpent. He operates under the authority of that serpent. He performs great signs and, and leads men and women of the world not to worship Christ, but to worship the beast. Again, this is a this is a, a picture of the counterfeiting nature of what Satan does in the world. And once again, Jesus gave us a heads up on this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, he says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The Apostle Paul taught us about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he he talks about the one of the individuals that a lot of us will attach to this antichrist figure, and I think he's right, but he says this, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So even Paul says, look, he's going to come and he's going to come with power, but he's going to come to deceive His power is deceptive. He is deceiving those who are perishing. In other words, there is a spiritual reality behind unbelief. I don't know if you knew that or not. There is a Holy Spirit reality behind your faith in Christ, and there is a demonic spiritual reality behind the unbelieving. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Look, I know we like to walk around in in that somewhat materialistic fog of believing, well, I believe what I see, and you know, we just believe in flesh and blood and all these things, and the scriptures continually open up and they reveal that there's something behind the veil of this flesh that lets us know that there is a spiritual reality at work. And everything in our world is being moved by these spiritual realities. And that's what we're we're seeing symbolized here. The false prophets of this world are much like Pharaoh's magicians, right? They, they find some means through their secret arts to, uh, to do what Moses was able to do, but then there comes a point at which their, their powers and their abilities are just absolutely gone, but their intention is to harden the heart of Pharaoh so they won't believe what Moses has to say. The false prophet is both a person and a principle He is already at work, and John tells us that there are more that are certain to come. And those who fall into this category of being false prophets, they are clever enough to fool the masses. False preachers, false teachers can be found throughout the religious world. But they're not just in the religious world. 
If Daniel is right and John is leaning on Daniel for our understanding, then this beast is more in line with causing mankind to worship something other than Christ, something like something out in the world, some national identity or some kingdom principle or some ruler or some ideology. And I believe that one of the real deep threats to our world today is not necessarily the twisting of the truth in the pulpit. That is very much a threat. But it's also the demonic propagandist that is working in secular thinking in our world and pulling so many who professed faith in Christ at some point away from the truth. In modern society, the cultural climate relies so heavily on a modern scientific worldview and on progress and on technology that it looks upon biblical Christianity as an outdated relic of the past. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm just trying to point out what is true, what's going on in our culture. Modern scientific theory purports to explain our world in purely materialistic terms such that technology has become the modern day worker of miracles. The simple fact that we carry computers in our pockets that buzz and notify us constantly of everything that's happening in the world and everything that's being said in the world and every new idea that's being pumped out in the world leads me to believe that there has never been a time in history when the people of God have been more bombarded with worldly ideas. And you can argue with me on that one if you want, but that's just where I'm staking my claim. These things are just flooding into our brains and flooding into our eyes. And we're being challenged, not just with watching some funny little video, we're being challenged with ideas that undermine our biblical faith. These things are promoted on every social media outlet, every news source, every streaming service, every magazine rack. As long as they're there, it'll be promoted there. We are inundated with ideas and they come to us through these magical little devices that we can't live without. By the way, those things have an off button. Did y'all know that? They do. You should exercise that. But so many of these ideas are absolutely contrary to the Word of God. Can you recognize that? Do you know enough of God's Word to be able to recognize when you're being fed a lie? Do you know enough of the truth that you can spot the counterfeit? Look, the scriptures tell us over and over, we must not believe every spirit. We must test all things and hold fast to what is good. And we do that not just by thinking, well, does that sound good? Do I like the way that makes me feel? That's not how we measure and test all things. We test all things according to the the truth of scripture. And we hold fast to what accords with biblical truth. We must not believe everything we see and hear and everything our friends retweet. We've got to be discerning because spokesmen for the secular cause want to convince you that true power resides in technology, in a modern view of the world and morality, and those who rule it. We must be on guard against this type of deception. It's everywhere. And and brothers and sisters, please don't think that this is, yes, I'm reading the Revelation and I know all that's going to happen in the future and there's going to come a day when we need to be on guard against that down the road. No, you need to be on guard against it today because this is a message for us and for every moment during the church age between Christ's first and second coming because this is happening and it's happening now. Okay, but what about this mark of the beast? I know 
it's a long day. We've got a lot, of, lot to cover. What about this mark of the beast? You've got this question in your mind, I'm sure. Let's look at verse 15. And it was allowed, talking about the, fir- the second beast, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image to be slain. That's not new. right? You remember the friends of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's day. You remember so many other Christians, even the apostles themselves who all died because they would not bow down and worship the state or the emperor. You know that's true. In verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, rich, poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, unless he has the name of the beast or its number or its name. What is all this about? I did a simple search online, which is dangerous, I know. I did a simple search online to see what the prevailing views might be with regard to what is the mark of the beast in 2022. Don't do that. It's not worth your time. Uh, I'll summarize it here for you. Um, There are some interesting arguments and some interesting articles on that. There are some really crazy ones too. But nearly all of the hits at the top of the list assume that this mark is going to be a literal symbol that will be compulsory for those who wish to have access to the marketplace. And, and I know that there are interpretive methods of looking at the Revelation that would believe that absolutely, that's the way we should understand this. Now, from the beginning of my study in this book, I have taken a different approach to the Revelation. And you know that, and I'm not about to abandon that now, right? So when it comes to those who believe in a, in a literal mark... I mean, it's anything from a tattoo that you're going to have to get, which is probably going to be a really sinister tattoo, like a serpent on your forehead. I actually saw that in an article. Or an upside-down cross or something like that. There's even a lot of folks that are believing that this is an RFID chip that goes underneath your skin. And those are actually available, but I don't think that's the mark of the beast at all. Nor is it some, you know, worldwide credit card thing. I, I just... All of these speculations assume that the mark is literal. And I just believe that's where they go wrong. Now, if if, if you affirm that, if you hold to a different position, you're well within the bounds of orthodoxy to do that. I simply do not. And I believe that there is scriptural evidence to suggest why I shouldn't. Joel Beakey, one of the commentators that I found incredibly helpful on this subject, Joel Beakey has written this. He says, The mark of the beast, like so many things in the Revelation should not be taken literally, but symbolically. We're not to look for a barcode or a brand mark or a credit card number that is to be embedded on the forehead or the right hand. These interpretations and predictions may be entertaining, and they certainly sell books, but they mishandle the revelation and its symbols. In the Greco-Roman world, it was common practice for slaves, for soldiers and even religious devotees to be branded on their arms or their their hands. Honestly, it wasn't often on the forehead. It was in different places. And we know that because in the Old Testament, even even, uh, indentured servants of the the Hebrews were, they had an awl put through their ear or they had rings or something like that to mark out that they were, they belonged to somebody. They were indentured to someone. And that's exactly what's happening here. These individuals in the Roman first century were, were branded in such a way as to show their status within society. 
And I believe that John is drawing on that cultural context as a way to symbolize the identifying of a person, whether they trust in Christ or they trust in the beast. I'm not through. But. The mark of the beast, in its essence, is a sign of ownership. The mark of the beast is a symbol of allegiance. It's an obvious identifier that makes clear to everyone that a person is devoted to the demonic system of this world rather than to Christ. And when you see it here in this text, and when you see it going forward, the mark of the beast is associated with those who worship the beast. Notice in verse 17 that the mark is associated with the name of the beast, or the number, and yet this is another instance of counterfeiting on the part of Satan. In Revelation chapter 3, in verse 12, you you probably won't remember this, but when Jesus wrote his letter to the church in Philadelphia, he said this to them. He he told them, persecution is coming, you're going to suffer it, and he says this. He says, if you will hold fast to my name, if you will conquer in the face of that temptation, then I will write on you the name of God and the name of the city of God, and I will write upon you my own new name. Do we interpret that to be literal? No. It's a symbolic reference to God's protection over his people. Jesus says, you hold fast to me, I will be faithful to you. And part of the symbol of that is my name will be written across you. You might remember a couple of months ago when we studied through the seals, when the seals were broken, there was actually a time when God pushed pause on everything that was happening and he made sure that he put a seal on all those who were his people. Do you remember that? And then when we saw the trumpets being blown, God pushed pause again and he measured the temple. He measured all those who worship Christ. And that was yet another instance, another symbolic instance of God placing his protective hand upon his people. And this is Satan's counterfeit of that very thing. Those symbols and those seals are not literal They're symbolic. They're figurative. For those who've placed their trust in Christ, the seal of God already rests upon you. And Satan has a counterfeit seal. Oh, by the way, in the end, in Revelation 22 and verse 4, all of the servants of God, when God gathers us all together around his throne, that's us, by the way, that's those who trust in Christ today, he says that we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. Brothers and sisters, that's symbolic. It's not literal. This mark from God, this seal from God, this promise of God over and over to his people is is something that he's promising to us who who trust in Christ. It's a mark of our faith in the Lord Jesus. It shows that we belong to Jesus. It is a mark that believers are sealed by the Spirit of God and are eternally secure. It's not a physical mark, though. It's a symbolic mark of our allegiance to Christ. The mark of our allegiance to Christ is our faithfulness to Him. It's our worship of Him. It's our witness to His work on the cross. And it's the fact that we hold fast to Him in the midst of our trials and temptations. And that's a theme that you see throughout the Revelation. And remember, this is just another version of the same season of life shown from a different angle. And what we're seeing is the counterfeit of Satan. The mark of allegiance to the beast is that people worship the beast. They are faithful to its lies, and they are witnesses 
of its propaganda. The name of Christ, which marks believers, is invisible, and I believe that the mark of the beast is also invisible. And so here's what that means to those of you who've been fearful of this. I do not believe that you can take this mark by accident. I don't believe that it's going to be slipped in through a vaccine. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what this passage is teaching. Your mark is your identifier of your allegiance, which means if you're a believer in Christ today, then the mark of Christ is on you. The name of Christ is on you. And nothing in the universe can take it away from you. And if you're an unbeliever today, then the mark of the beast is on you because you've rejected Christ. And whether you are worshiping yourself, your own idea of deity, or you're worshiping the state, or you're worshiping some other ideology, the mark of the beast is upon you. And there's only one way that you can get free from it. And that's to turn from your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The gospel tells us that God is true. He is the Holy One. We are sinfully broken people separated from Him because of our sins. We are selfish and prideful towards those around us. And in our hearts, we are selfish and prideful towards God Himself. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. We want to define what is good and what is not. We want to be the ones who declare what is true. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet in his mercy and in his grace and in his love, God sent his son to show us what true miracles look like, to show us what it looks like when the supernatural reality invades the natural world. And he lived for us and he taught us and he died for us and he rose again. And and now he is extending his grace to you that even today, If you lay down your sin in repentance and you receive his grace with the empty hands of faith, you can be saved and sealed with his name for eternity. That's the gospel truth and that's the gospel reality. Brother, sister, we need to be confident in what God has shown us and not be confused because it's difficult to interpret. And yes, I know it's difficult to interpret. But for those of you who are not believing, your only hope is to trust in Christ. And this calls for wisdom. And this is the last thing that we'll see here. Look at verse 18. And John even tells us this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Or I believe a better translation would be, it is the number of mankind. The Net Bible gets it right there. And his number is 666. Now notice that John does not tell us that we need to sharpen up our riddle-solving skills. Right? He tells us to be wise. The number and the name of the beast is not something that requires us to be clever code breakers. It requires us to be wise. How many of you have heard in your study of this or somebody teaching this that this number corresponds to one singular actual historical figure? I see like three hands. Okay, I thought it would be more. There's one position that wants to calculate this as being Nero, and that is fundamentally flawed. And there are others that want to calculate this as being other figures. And what they're doing is they're taking the numerical value of letters. Think Roman numerals, right? They're taking the numerical value of letters found in an individual's name. They're adding those up. And the sum that they get allows them to determine whether or not his name adds up to 666. And that's what they're trying to do. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do at all here. 
That method relies upon a literal translation of this passage, and, and this passage, more than any other in the book, demands a symbolic understanding because it's just so wild with all this vivid illustration. So what do we make of this number? What is the significance of the number 666? The biblical significance of the number 6 is actually quite simple. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, on the sixth day, God made man, and number 6 is, is used as a reference to the number of man, but it's also used as a symbol for incompleteness. Because God didn't finish creating the world on the sixth day, he finished it on the seventh day. And so the number seven corresponds to perfection or completion, it corresponds to God. And look, we've been studying this for a long time, we've seen numerology everywhere in this book. And this is yet another instance of that. To, to use the number six is a reference to the, the incompletion of man's attempts. And that is exactly what Satan is, he is an incomplete Lord, and he is corrupting mankind. Satan is the great imitator. He is the great deceiver. He falls short of God's completed perfection. His work always falls short, and we have seen it happen already several times as we've been studying this book. Don't forget what happens on the sixth day, and I'm talking about Revelation. When the sixth seal is broken, when the sixth trumpet is blown, when the sixth bowl is poured out, guess what happens? The judgment of God is poured out upon man and the wicked temptations and purposes of Satan are brought to an end on the sixth day. But on the seventh day, when the seventh seal is broken, when the seventh trumpet is blown, when the seventh bowl is poured out, God's work is complete and his kingdom is fully established and all of his people come into his presence. John is using that same symbolism. I believe that's the significance of the number 666. It is the number of Satan himself. It identifies his influence through nations and world leaders, not just one particular individual. And it will come to an end because Satan's attacks and deceptions, though they're being employed through every generation, they will come to an end and God will win the day. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to face this. Nations will rise with godless purposes, with godless leaders, and they will be the vocal face of that nation but when a leader dies, another rises to take its place. And it may appear as if the beast has been defeated, but he will rise again in some other form. For those who thought it was, you know, the Pope back in the days of the Reformation, in part they were right, but he wasn't the final one. For those who thought it was Hitler back in World War II, in part they were right, but he wasn't the final one. These nations, these leaders are merely pawns in Satan's schemes to deceive mankind and to persecute the people of God year after year, generation after generation. So here's the question. Should we expect to see one Antichrist? Should we expect to see one man of lawlessness rise? Will one significant world leader fully embody the spirit of Antichrist more than any other? I do believe that that is a possibility. But we can't deny the fact that many antichrists have already come. We cannot, and that's just quoting scripture to you. We cannot deny the fact that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's again a quote of scripture. If and when the final antichrist rises through the power of a nation, he will simply be the last in a long line of men who promote the devil's agenda in the world. That's a lot of words to say what I've been trying to say. Look, this calls us to be wise. 
This is a call for wisdom, and John puts it right there. This is an exhortation for Christians not to be drawn into the beast's deception like unbelievers all around us. This is a call for us to root ourselves in the Word of God and be wise according to what God has revealed. This is a call for us to be on guard against the deception of the world and the temptation to put our hope and our trust and our allegiance behind some idea, behind some national party, or behind some particular leader. Because by doing so, will cause us to reject Christ as Lord in our lives and stop being faithful to Him. This is a call for wisdom, not mathematical sleuthery. This is a call for us to fully embody the truth of God's Word in our day-to-day lives and in our decision-making. This is a call for us to be spiritually and morally discerning. Wherever ideas are shared that contradict the clear teaching of God's Word, John would have us understand that the spirit of Antichrist is at work. Wherever worldly seduction is celebrated and sexual immorality is declared to be a point of pride for a culture, the spirit of Antichrist is at work. Wherever the name of Christ is mocked and the people of Christ are declared to be the enemy of the state's progress, the spirit of Antichrist is on the move. So let me be clear. The beast must be avoided and it will take wisdom for us to do so. So let me pray for us and let's ask for that wisdom now. Father, thank you for your word. I know it is deeply challenging, but it is true because it is from you. So help us to be wise and discerning. Give us understanding of these things so that we cannot be puffed up with pride because we think we have all knowledge, but so that we can be humbled because we wouldn't have known this had you not revealed it to us. And we need to be humble because we can be deceived because we are weak men. And we need to be humbled because we need to rely upon you day in and day out, moment in and moment out. We need to rely on your truth to help us understand what is real and what is good. So Father, would you protect us as you promised you would. For those who trust in Christ, the seal of our Father is upon us. The seal of our Savior rests upon us and it will never be taken away from us. Would you continue to protect us and would you make us ready to engage in this culture in a way that we can be the salt and light you've called us to be but not so that we can imbibe what this culture is peddling. Father, help us to be on guard. Keep us together as a church and keep us faithful to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.